We have been studying through the first chapter of Ephesians, and uh, we have encountered this uh, tremendous, um, you could call it a song, you could call it a, a prayer, but uh, um, wh- however you want to think about it, it's a word of blessing. It's simply um, an overflow of uh, the great apostles thinking about what Christ has done for us. And so uh, it, it is... Uh, um, it is common, especially in the Jewish portion, the Hebrew section of our Old Testament, to find such language, uh, to say, blessed is our God and Father. Blessed be our Lord and Savior. Blessed be him who has done all things for us. And that's what this is. It is a, um, a song, a prayer, a praise of all the great things that the blessed God and Savior has done for us. And at the center of it is really the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, what we will see, as, I think, as we unpack this this morning, is that some of the most basic things that we believe about our Christian faith, about who Christ is for us, are expressed so well in these few verses. It is about Christ and how he is our redemption and how he is our future. And by future, I mean that he is our, our purpose, our goal, our hope, um, and everything that we strive to become as, uh, as human beings. Let me read to you, or, or let me just say this. I will read the entirety of, uh, of verses 3 to 14 in a second. Our focus is going to be verses 7 through 10, but let me remind you of one thing, a couple of things. One, this is one long blessing sentence, right? From verse 3 all the way to verse 14, just this huge run on, 202 words, a singular barakah, a singular blessing. And verse 3 was the launching point, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, everything given to us in the person of Christ. That's the great praise. And then last week, we looked at how, how the Father ought to be blessed and exalted because he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He predestined us to adoption to himself, right, so that we might be sons because of what Jesus Christ has done. And all of it, verse 6, was meant to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the Beloved. And this is where we're going to start to pick up because it is about glory and about grace focused in the beloved. Let me read you verses 3 to 14 and then we'll pray and we'll try to unpack some of this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we look to the scriptures again this morning, we are, um, we are again astounded at what you have accomplished for us by your grace in the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, I realize there may be some in this, in this room, in this gathering, that, that are still uncertain about where they stand with the things of the Lord. And we pray that you would be gracious to their souls to open their eyes to grace and truth. For those of us that um, claim the name of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, Lord, may we deepen our affection and appreciation for what you have done for us in Christ. Lord, we hear the refrain that this is all of it. The gospel, our salvation, your graciousness is meant to inspire praise that it should bring you glory. Lord, help us to live like We are in the midst of praising your glorious grace. You are a good God. In fact, our words can't express significantly what that means that you are so good. Would you help us? Would you allow the Holy Spirit to enliven our souls, to hear the words of Scripture, and to recognize the truthfulness and the depth of our redemption and our hope in Jesus Christ? Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now we left off, like I said, at verse 6, which is kind of a, a good, I think, a transitional point. And it says there that all of it that, that God the Father has done, chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, predestined us for adoption so that you know, we might be uh, sons through Jesus Christ, All of it according to his will, his purpose. And verse 6 says, to the praise of his glorious grace. And we said that there's a combination of we will praise God's glory. But immediately, right next door, it says we will praise his grace. And the combination of that reads out in our English like like this. Like we will praise his glorious grace. Um, And we could say it that way. We could say it in the longer form and say, you know, to the praise of his glory, right? Demonstrated in his grace or something like that. But the point is, there is a connection between God's glory and his graciousness, his mercy, his kindness. And I just want to point that out to you because I think that's really the launching point for everything else that's going to come today in verses 7 through 10. For example... In other portions of scripture, like in John 1, remember John 1, 1 begins, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, both distinction and identical identity, right, nature. But verse 14 of John chapter 1 says this, and the word, speaking of the son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his, his glory, Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Something about whatever we saw in Jesus Christ, right? The incarnate second person of the Trinity, 
we saw his glory. And part of what it means that these witnesses saw his glory and beheld his gloriousness is that they recognized the fullness of his grace and his truth. That in him was absolute truthfulness, right? Absolute veracity, but not just the facts, ma'am. Not just, I'm just telling you what is happening or this is the truth of the universe, but there's a fullness of grace and that's what inspires glory. In other words, John is saying, we saw his glory. And what I mean by that, right, is not just that, that we saw him transfigured and his, he was glowing and his clothes were whiter than, you know, than any you know, launderer on earth can whiten them. He means more than that. He means we beheld the fullness of what makes him so glorious, and it's his grace and his truth. 2 Corinthians 4.15 says something similar. It says, for it is all for your sake, for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Again, the idea of God's grace is the focus of his glory. And it's not to say that the only thing about God's glory is his grace, but it's to say that it seems to be a running theme in scripture that one of the most magnificent things about what makes God so unique and excellent and wondrous to us is his graciousness. Now, if you fail to catch that, I think everything else kind of pales in terms of understanding its depth its value, and um, why it is that we should be praising the name of our God for eternity. Because that's exactly what verse 6 has said, right? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 6 implies that for all of eternity, we will be praising God the Father for the glory of his grace as revealed specifically in the person of Jesus Christ. It was his great glorious grace which with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And so it's the beloved that is the focus of verses 7 through 10. If you haven't seen it yet, even as we read through verses 3 to 14 and again and again, there's a trinitarian focus. It's what the father has accomplished, right? And then here in this section it's what the son has done for us and then towards the end Right is what the Spirit has sealed and what He has finalized and promised and made sure that He might be the guarantor of all these things that I've already been spoken of. But this is where we're headed. It's just two major movements, I think, in this section. One is about Christ, our Redeemer. The second is about Christ, our hope, our future. And so we'll begin with our redemption in Christ in verses 7 through 8. In him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And we can just start right there. Right? Each phrase, I think, is packed with theological truth, but don't let it be academic. I mean, it, it is rich with what it is that makes God gracious and laudable, uh, praiseable, adorable, uh, magnificent from our perspective. Because it says in him, in who? In the beloved. That was the last word of verse 6. In the beloved, we have redemption through his blood. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We can say amen to that because we know that that's true, etc. But let's unpack that a little bit. 
The first term that we encounter is that in Christ, in the beloved, we have redemption. Redemption is a curious word that we don't really use today that much. Unless we're talking about you got to redeem that electronic coupon, right? Isn't that how we use the word redeem? Like we, you redeem a coupon or a voucher, etc. And the reason why that's the right term for what you'd use, right, as kind of a stand between or something that is kind of like money is because redemption is a marketplace term. It's a term that comes from this root word that means to ransom. It means to pay the price of something for its liberation. To buy something, right, out of bondage. It is used particularly in the marketplace of slave trade. You would redeem someone that is, belongs to someone else by a purchase price. That, that's what it means to redeem someone. To redeem something. In the Old Testament, the concept of redemption almost always hovers very closely to the idea of how God rescued um, the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And so you have like, like literally hundreds of years later, the prophets still talking about, I redeemed you out of Egypt. And, and you know, you can imagine, you know, some of these, uh, these, these wicked Hebrews kind of thinking like, come on, like that was like almost a thousand years ago. Can we move on? Right. But the whole point is, why did God do that? Well, because that becomes then in the Old Testament, the ongoing illustration of what it means for God to rescue, to liberate a bondaged people, a people enslaved. Now, this is going to have natural ramifications, almost like a living illustration from the Old Testament of what is to come spiritually, because not all those that were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt were redeemed in the sense of their full salvation and then being, you know, redeemed unto forgiveness of sins. Now, as a nation, they were rescued. And that might be the right term for it. But by the New Testament, this concept of redemption becomes so much more clear. It becomes the purchase of freedom from the binding power of guilt and sin. We are set free, right? We are ransomed into freedom from our bondage. To sin. And we are set free from our bondage to sin. Here it says, through his blood. In him we have redemption through his blood. The significance of blood goes all the way back to the Old Testament sacrifices, certainly, but it's not so much about biological fluid. It's not so much about, okay, you need to bleed, the animal needs to bleed, we love the color red, right? Blood is about the, the, the power or um, uh, the, the thing that you most need to physically live. So blood represented life. And in sacrifice, the spilling of blood represented life for life. The violent loss of life as a symbol of what we deserved. Right? Taken by symbol, by, by sacrifice, um, in something else, whether it's bloods, the blood of bulls and goats or, or, or other animals, it is, it is a reminder that this is the kind of sudden and tragic loss of life that we deserve. So that's what blood meant. It meant life. And in particularly in the sacrificial system, it meant the life that was given up for the sake of another. But Hebrews 10.4 reminds us there that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins forever. That wasn't what the sacrificial system was for. It was to call us, to draw us to something more significant, 
to a final sacrificial lamb that could take away sins once and for all. So in Hebrews 9, 12, it says that Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats or bulls and calves, goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. His death becomes the payment price of an eternal redemption. So we are redeemed by his blood means that he died. He died a violent death. He died an untimely death. He died a death, in fact, that he didn't deserve to die so that he might pay in full the penalty that we should have paid. It's an exchange, and that's why we mean his sacrificial death. He died in our place. And his blood, the blood of Christ, to say that in him we have redemption through his blood, doesn't mean that he had to bleed. It means that he had to die. The redemption, the cost, the price of our liberation from bondage, the price of that would be his very blood, his very life. So in 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19, it says this, knowing that you were ransomed, see the same language? From the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So this is just explaining this is how we got redeemed. This is how we got saved. This is how we were ransomed from what we deserve to what we have in Jesus Christ. He's the one that paid. He paid our penalty. So then the next part kind of flows naturally from that. Uh, the, the, if, if we're trying to understand what it means or uh, the emphasis on the idea that we are ransomed, we are redeemed, then on the flip side, our debts are now canceled. And that's what we mean by forgiven of our trespasses in the second part of verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. So think of ransom as maybe the key word to trigger our thinking about what it means that he has paid for our release, our freedom. But the second part the forgiveness of our trespasses emphasizes, and if you can you know, fixate on a word, maybe cancellation. Forgiveness of our trespasses, trespass is just, uh, it's, a, it's one of the many different ways to express sinfulness, but um, kind of like when we trespass, like, you know, there's signs and you're not supposed to trespass. You know, if you've ever gone to the Grand Canyon and, or to Yosemite and you're at the top of the valley and you're curious to kind of look down, there's always signs there that say, hey, man, don't go, don't go past this sign, right? Because it's dangerous. But you, inevitably, you see people like sitting on the edge of the rock with their legs dangling because it's, it's a thrill for them to go out and experience that. But that's trespassing. That is going beyond the limit is what is allowable. And if a ranger sees you, he could give you a ticket. He'll probably just give you a warning and tell you, back up, cuckoo, you're going to fall down, right? That's trespass, the way that we think of it, but understood in Scripture, the idea is that there is a straight way, a straight path, a right direction, and you have intentionally wandered off its path. The word trespass implies the intentionality of it. It's not just, I I accidentally got lost. It is, is, wait, Nam, did you you know the path? It's like, yeah, I knew the path. Did Did you read the signs? Yeah, I saw the signs. So what you doing dangling off the edge of, of right, the Grand Canyon? It's like, man, I don't know. I, I thought it would be fun, right? It is the intentional wandering from what we know to be right. So if there is a trespass, and granted, Scripture makes, uh, makes the point that it is all of us, in, in, in terms of our intentionality, 
And intentionality doesn't mean that you can clearly define exactly why you did it, except that you kind of wanted to. But the point is that your trespasses can be forgiven. That's what we mean by we are redeemed by his blood. We have the cancellation of the debt that your trespasses deserve, right? So forgiveness is remission, dismissal, release, a cancellation that is no longer on the record. Like Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far are my transgressions, right? They're cast away from us. See, so if redemption, if that term is about the purchase of liberation from the bondage of sin, forgiveness is about the cancellation of the effects of of all the payment that is involved in what our sinfulness should bring us. Leviticus 16 speaks of Yom Kippur, the day, Yom uh, Kippur, of atonement, the day of atonement. And in the day of atonement, one of the things that is interesting is they'll get two sacrificial goats. One is killed, and they sprinkle the blood as they do with all the sacrifices they sprinkle, etc. But then the other one, and we call this one the scapegoat. And if you ever wonder, like, like, where does that term scapegoat come from? It comes from Leviticus 16. The high priest would place his hands on the scapegoat, and putting his hands upon him, it would be recognized that the sins of Israel are placed on this goat. And then they would let it go out into the wilderness as far as it could go. And the idea is, as far as that thing is run away, so has your sins been cleared. Your trespasses have been wiped away. Your debts have been canceled. Your intentional wandering away from the things of the Lord, all of that unrighteousness is gone. The scapegoat leaves. It leaves camp. It goes out into the wilderness. It disappears as far as we're concerned. And it is a ceremonial reminder of how God had canceled debt, had forgiven sin. But see, here's the point, though. This is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, let me say more. This is only possible through another, through a perfect man, a perfect God. It is not possible in ourselves. And the the issue with every human religion, every moral, you know, kind of human ideology is that it falls short of being able to ransom us, Right? of redeeming us. It falls short of actually finally and fully canceling all of our debt. All of it falls short and we're left in our guilt and in our sin. Albert Speer, I think it's pronounced Speer, right? Because he was German. Um, He was uh, one of Hitler's confidants and uh, he is credited with keeping the, the Nazi war machine running through World War II because he was a technological genius. Of the 24 war criminals that were tried at Nuremberg, he was the only one who admitted his guilt. He served 20 years in prison as a result of those trials. And then uh, shortly thereafter, or year, maybe years after, well, actually maybe decades after, um, he was interviewed um, on Good Morning America. And the, interview, the interviewer referred to a passage from his uh, upcoming book, um, from Spears' writing, and he says, you state that, uh, that you have said the guilt can never be forgiven or should be. Do you still feel that way? And Spear answered, I served a sentence of 20 years, and I could say, I could say, I'm a free man. My conscience has been cleared by serving the whole time as punishment, but I can't get rid of it. 
This new book is part of my atoning, of clearing my conscience. So the interviewer responds, you really don't think you'll be able to clear it totally. And Spears shook his head. I don't think it will be possible. Albert Spear died shortly after that interview. And unfortunately, Spear was tragically correct. He could never clear his own debt. He could never appease his own guilt. Right? He, he can't do that on his own. He would have to spend eternity in paying his debt of sin for him to be cleared. But see, that's the point. Christ died and redeemed us by his blood so that we might be free. Free from the consequence of sin and free from the guilt that that sin is deserving upon us. Because if it's paid in full, it's paid in full. If the debt is canceled, it is canceled. So long as that payment is legitimate, there is then no condemnation for those that would find themselves in Christ Jesus, trusting in his abundant grace for salvation and life. It could be that you're sitting here right now and you just feel trapped. Enslaved to sin, dead guilty, uncertain about how to move forward. First John 1 John 1.9 just makes the gospel this clear. If you confess your sin, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's not about if you confess your sins, you're on your way. Keep going. You're doing great. No, if you confess your sins, it's him. He is the one that must redeem us by his blood, that must cancel the debt of our transgressions, our trespasses. He is the one that is amazingly wealthy in grace. Our redemption is in Christ. That's point one, right? Redeemed by his blood, forgiven of our trespasses. But here's the the next line there at the end of verse 7 that is so rich. Verse 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. That last part is immeasurably rich to us. It says, according to the riches of his grace, in the first part of verse 8, says, which he lavished upon us. Let's get the eight, verse 8 part, uh, um, you know, let's get that explained first. The idea of being lavish means to spend a profuse amount. It is to spend, but to spend in a way that is, that is, that is almost unconscionable. Like you, you are just pouring it out. You, you getting crazy, right? So this is like, a, I don't know, like a, if you like pancakes, right? You like a little maple syrup. If you like a little maple syrup, you don't understand lavish. If you like a lot of maple syrup, maybe you're starting to get the picture, right? It's like you're just pouring it on and it is overflowing. It is to say that if you're going to give something or you're going to buy something, you're going to add something to something, that you're going to go over the top to the point that other people go, dude, that is too much. You have gone too far. The too far is, is really the meaning of lavish. He has lavished something upon us in such profuse abundance that is immeasurable and it's kind of ridiculous. That's the description of his grace towards us. Because verse 7, going back to the end of verse 7, it says, according to the riches of his grace. That's what he has lavished upon us. But it says, according to the riches of his grace. We do have to explain grace. We use that term all the time and we should constantly explain it. 
So they were constantly refreshed and how good that word is. Right? We, we said in verse 6 that for all of eternity, there's going to be praise of God's glory fixated upon his grace. This is that word again. It's that word grace. And grace is that, that wondrous word that means unmerited favor or generosity. The word comes right at its, word, at its root. The word means gift. And so the unmerited is almost doubling down on the gracious or the giftedness of something. It is to get something that you cannot deserve or earn in any other way. Because if you earned it or deserved it or paid something for it, it's no longer unmerited. That's what unmerited means. You didn't have any merit that, that would deserve this. It means that you weren't a little more savable than that other dude that you know. It, does, it means that you know, your life was not a little more useful, a little more helpful, a little more valuable to the Lord than all those other people that are in your family. No, it means that you had nothing to offer and God was not moved by anything that he saw in you that says, man, that guy would be pretty good. That girl would be pretty good in the kingdom. He says, no, they're all worthless. That's why his choice of you is grace, unmerited. It is an unearnable, undeserved act of kindness. And so it's unmerited favor. The word favor means that it is just given freely. This is something that is characteristic of our God that every Christian should not just know, but embrace and cherish and really praise. That's why we will praise his glorious grace. Romans eleven six 6 says, If it is by grace, talking about our salvation, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Whatever else grace means, it means that you can't add to it, make it better, or earn it in any way. That's why it's unmerited favor. And according to verse 7, it says that we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ according to the riches of his grace, which he lavishly poured out upon us. The term riches, right, just means that, again, that it is, it is wealth. Uh, God is rich. He is wealthy. You know, he has, he has more than abundance for us. But what I love is that, that, that word, according to the riches of his immeasurable grace. See, according is different um, from out of. If the scripture said God has blessed us, Right? Out of the riches of his grace. That, that wouldn't be wrong. That means that he is wealthy in grace and he has given us some. But the difference between out of and according to is this. So imagine that there is some super wealthy person, right? Um, decides that uh, they're looking for a worthy ministry, a wonderful church, pastored by a handsome man. You know, like our church maybe, right? Like IBC. There's two ways that he could give. Like he wants to give something to us. There's two ways, two manners in which he could give. He could give out of his riches, which means that he is super rich and he gives us like a hundred bucks. That's nice. We're thankful. You know, thanks for giving your hundred bucks. He might give like a thousand bucks. He might donate a computer or something like, you know, like he could give us something. That's good. But if he's exceedingly wealthy, that's just him giving out of his riches, they said J.D. Rockefeller had that habit. You know, J.D. Rockefeller was crazy rich in a time where hardly anybody else was rich. And um, um, he would walk around and in public, he would give um, people like kids a dime. 
right? Um, and yeah, okay, back in those days, a dime could buy you a little bit more than it could today. Like, you know, you could, you could get like, maybe you could get a little, little meal or something. I don't, I don't know. I didn't live then, right? But I, I know that it could buy you more. So let's say it could get you a Happy Meal. So it's like you'd buy a kid a Happy Meal, but he would always make sure it's a photo op opportunity that, that someone would take a picture of it. This is a J.D. Rockefeller. That was nuts, right? But, but that's what he would do. That, that's what it means to give out of your riches, your wealth. He has super wealth. He could have, if that child, if you wanted to, you could say, hey, listen, child, listen, listen kid, I'm going to pay for the edu- your education and anything that you need for the rest of your life. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't have bothered his fortune at all, right? It wouldn't, nobody would have hardly noticed. He wouldn't have noticed, right? He could say, where's your parents? I'm going to buy them a new house, right? Because that's, that's just how I roll. I'm going to buy you a house. I'm going to pay for your groceries. Like, he could do that. It wouldn't bother him at all. But it was out of his riches. He just dropped the kid a dime. That's kind of funny, right? Talk about dropping dimes. Never mind. All right. Um, but what if that wealthy individual that came and visited IBC decided to donate like a million dollars or to buy us a, a building? We would say, dude, that is pretty excessive. That, that is amazingly generous. And I think he would, we would think that that's what it looks like to give according to your wealth. You have the capacity to do it. Why don't you do it? You know, some uh, private uh, colleges like Harvard have an endowment that is so big that if they wanted to, they could offer free tuition and board for all of their undergraduate students into perpetuity. For those of you guys that are South Campus majors, perpetuity means forever. It's that, it's that you know, sideways eight symbol that you, you are fond of, right? Uh, can you imagine that? Like a, a university has the capacity. That would be according to their wealth. Right, that that would be them saying, "Hey, listen, if you could get in, right, and we're gonna be very, we're gonna be very, you know, uh, careful about who let in. But if you can get in, everything, your whole education, your living expense here, it's all free, because we could do that. Because our endowment's so big that as it earns interest or whatever it does, it earns its own money. There's plenty left over to keep that going, as far as we could tell, right, until the Lord returns." Can you imagine that? Well, that's what it means that God blesses us out of, not just out of, but according to his wealth. In other words, how generous is he? That determines how much he gives us, not how much our need is. So see, the point is he doesn't base it on just our need. Wait, how much much debt do you have? Okay, tell me to the penny. I'm going to write that exact amount. That is generous. But this is saying, no, I'm going to give you out of my generosity, in other words, based on me, not based on you. That is our God. His grace towards us is because that's who he is. That's what he's like. And if you think to yourself, even as a believer, like, Lord, I can't believe you would save someone like me. Like, I still keep messing up. I wish I would do better. Like, I don't know when I'm going to actually get more mature. I feel like there's so many things that are not, not like really good in me, and I'm doing my best, but man, I keep faltering God's point is, my goodness, was it all based on you? Or was it based on my lavish and wealthy grace? He gives according to what is his wealth in graciousness. Not according to just what you need. He gives you an overabundant wealth of goodness. Because that's what it means that he has cast his love upon you. Our redemption is in Christ, is by his blood, 
It's a cancellation of all of our intentional sins. But man, it is according to the abundance of God's grace, which he has lavished upon us in the person of his son. There is no one that deserves the righteousness of Jesus Christ to cover our sins. And that's what's offered to us. Like, like an infinite righteousness is offered to us. Not just, okay, listen, if I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm so merciful, I'm going to cancel all your debts up to this moment, but the rest of your life, you better be crazy careful. That would be a kindness. That would be a mercy. That would be a graciousness that is out of his wealth, I suppose. But according to the scriptures, Christ died for our sins, our past sins, and the sins we may commit today, all the sins of our lifetime, to demonstrate his abundant, overflowing, excessively lavish grace upon us. Who says no to such a gospel? Well, probably everyone in this room at some point, right? It shows you the difficulty of the unrepentant, the unredeemed, to see that it is all in Christ. He is the one redeemer, and it's all fixated on it. That's why God deserves all the glory. That's going to be at the end end of all things. It's not going to be, oh, praise God, you know, and praise all of these guys, these saints and these apostles. It is all praise God, right, in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Our redemption is in Christ. The second one to go a little bit faster. Our future is in Christ. And this is 8b through verse 10. And the idea here is simply that everything is focused in terms of future glory on the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Um, verse 8, the second part of verse 8 says this. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. There is a revealing of God's will that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. This is part of his lavish grace. And and part of his lavish grace is he's bestowed upon us wisdom and insight. And by using these two terms, he is trying to encapsulate everything that is our mental processes. For example, right, we often just, you know, just in, in our Western civ culture, right, we often distinguish between intelligence and wisdom. Someone could be super intelligent, meaning they could gather data, right? In fact, I, I, I think, sorry, my thing has been slipping here. Um, I think IQ test is an intelligence quotient. It, it tells you the capacity of an individual to gather information. And if you met someone with a super high IQ, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're very wise, right? Like they might be like, they, they know all this data, but then when you ask them to apply things to like normal living, it's like, dude, like, Hey, keep an eye, eye on the eggs, man. You're burning the eggs, right? Like they just don't know how to do stuff. Well, so we distinguish between intelligence and wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to take what you know and to adapt it into very practical purposes. Similarly, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, right, the term wisdom or wise would be an adjective to say that someone is skilled. So in other words, it's not just wise, the ohm, you know, that, that bearded, old, white, haired guy that, you know, that is super old and leathery. That guy just has, drops bombs of pearls of wisdom. It's not just that. But in the Old Testament, if the carpenter would be called a wise carpenter. And what they mean by that is that he is particularly skilled. So it's like expertise. 
It's taking things that you know and being able to apply it well. So if you use both of those terms or both of those concepts, then you have everything that is your mental process, right? You have both, can you understand the theoretical and can you apply it in a way that's practical? And it's saying we have all of that. We have the capacity to know the things of the Lord, the the theological concepts, and go, man, that's astounding, and I don't even understand the full depth and nature of some of the things that are our God. But that's wisdom. And the term insight means this practical understanding, a comprehension of needs, uh, the ability to solve problems and apply principles to everyday living. And so you have both. If we apply it to our Christian lives, I think the idea is that what God has granted to us in his lavish grace is capacity to know the things of the Lord and to live in a manner that's appropriate to the things of the Lord that we're learning. He's given us both. He's given us capacity. Our redemption comes with the spiritual discernment necessary to take us through this life. And all of that, again, in our Redeemer, in Jesus Christ, in the lavish grace that that the Father has bestowed upon us through Him. But in particular... It says, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. In particular, God has given us capacities, discernment, you know, minds to think and to read scripture, to understand and to know, so that what becomes clearer and clearer to us is the mystery of his will and his purposes, which he has set forth in Christ. Don't get tripped up with the word mystery, because, you know, when you think of mystery, you probably think Scooby-Doo. Right. Like, you know, there's there's something happening. You can't explain it. You got to put the pieces together and you got to solve it in scripture. Mystery refers more to those things that were either subtle or not fully known in the Old Testament that are now clearly revealed. It is more the term revelation. This is revealed. This is known now, which was unknown before. But it implies that it is something that is known now that probably couldn't have been figured out on your own in your own humanness. It's usually fixated upon the crosswork of Jesus Christ. I'll give you one example. Colossians 1.26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. See, like what was not fully revealed, but maybe kind of was hinted at, was not only that Christ was going to die, you know, for the sins of the nation of Israel, but also for the Gentiles, so that all of us would be included as saints, as holy ones, because of him. So God has given to us, he's revealed to us his will in Christ. So part of his lavish grace is that we have mental capacities and discernments and he is making known to us what is being revealed. His mysterious, right? Not in the weird kind of hidden way, but mysterious in the, in the interesting and revelatory way that he is making this clear to us what is his will and what is his purpose. There's two terms here that is used often in scripture interchangeably. It, it is the mystery of his will. And that word um, speaks of, you know, your intention, but it comes from a word that means desire. It is what God wants. This is what God wants to happen. And we are starting to understand those things, right? Through the scriptures, through the knowledge of God. But the second word is according to his purpose. 
That's an interesting term because it's used similarly to talk about what God wants, what his purpose might be. But it's a word that in, in other um, modern translations is inten- that is translated kind intention in the NASB or good pleasure in the New King James. Why? Because it's a word that literally means a good thought. So it's not just that God has a will, has a direction, but that in his direction, in his will, there is a sense of just kind intention and good pleasure. See, again, the lavishness of his grace comes through. And God is revealing these things to us, right? Our minds with wisdom and insight, understanding where all of this is going. He's revealing these things to us in Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ. The last part of verse 9, right? Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. That last part just simply means that Christ is at the center of it all. The point is that Jesus is at the center of it all. God's purpose for salvation is fixated upon the person of Christ. The end of all things, when all things are fully revealed and everything is made known and all things are refreshed and all sin is canceled and paid for, everything is done and fully paid and paradise, right? Eternity, the new heavens and the new earth, in that period of time, it'll still be fixated and centered upon Jesus Christ. And if that's not clear to us in verse nine, then verse 10 makes it absolutely clear. It's about the summing up of all things in Christ. Look at verse 10. Let me read it from verse, uh, verse 8b and all of it. So we're kind of catching the whole thing. It's the hardest thing about Ephesians 1, 3 to 14 is that it is with one long run-on sentence. And to kind of take it apart, take apart someone's long sentence and trying to figure out where, where the dividing lines are, that's, that's a challenging thing. But this is what it says, starting in the second part of verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, what he desires, according to his good purpose or his good pleasure, which he set forth in Christ. It fixates on him. Verse 10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. Both his redeeming grace, which we saw in in verses 7 and 8, And all the wisdom and insight to unpack the mysteries of God's will, which we saw in verse 8 and 9, has a singular purpose. That all things would be united in Jesus Christ, according to verse 10. Verse 10 says that there's a plan for the fullness of times. Plan is a word that means uh, house administration. right? The root word of it is actually home. And the idea is that there is a way of administrating something or a plan that is effective for something or the manner in which we conduct certain organizational things. And every organization has some purposes. It goes somewhere. It accomplishes something. It makes something. That's that's what it does. So there is a plan. There's an administration that is for the fullness of time, that is meant for the end of the time or the end of the ages, right? There is a day coming that has been in the works. And the works are for that fullness, the end of all time, the fullness of days. And when that time comes, we'll see that the plan that God has set in motion, right, as a plan for the fullness of time, the ultimate purpose is that second part of verse 10, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. It is so that all things 
would be united in the person of Christ. The NASB, I, I like their wording of it. It's the word that means to sum up. And it says, it is to sum up. It's the summing up of all things in Jesus Christ. The word means to gather together all the fragmented and alien pieces of the universe and put it together rightly. This is, what you would, this is the word that you would use for that, you know, that thousand piece puzzle. You know, you get that puzzle and it's like fun initially because all you do is the edges. And then after that, you're like, dude, this, this, this it all looks the same. It's, I'm done, right? But see, as you're doing that, if all the pieces are put into place, it paints exactly the picture it's supposed to be. See, that's the summing up. It's not, it's not so much just grabbing everything, but it's grabbing the right thing at the right time so that all things are united in the right way. This is the final purpose of all of creation, of the universe, and your life. Scripture purports to give us the answer to the meaning of the life, this universe, and everything in it. And the answer is Jesus Christ. He is the why of all things that exist. Right? That everything, whether in heaven or upon earth, would be gathered up and would be counted and would be assembled in the person and for the person of Jesus Christ means that, that all of it comes together. He is the final purpose. He is the final measure of the value of every single piece. He is the final judge that determines like how, you know, how, how significant and important each piece is. Everything that is created, every person that has ever lived, their value is found in relationship to Jesus Christ. Not in themselves, not in what they want, not in the world and the life that they want to live, not in their experiences. That's all the secondary stuff. The God's general graciousness, his kindness stuff that you get to enjoy. Now the purpose of all of creation and the purpose of the existence of your soul is that you might be summed up in Christ one day. Colossians 1, 15-17 says it this way. Jesus Christ, he is the image of the invisible God. Right? You get that image, meaning like the visible impression of the otherwise invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him, all things hold together. I I just want you to hear that phrase again. All things were created through him. He's the agent by which all the creation that took place. But the second part is, and all things are created for him. It means that the entire universe, you know, has been created with an intention, with a plan for the fullness of times. That they should be summed up, gathered together, put in their right place, right? Administrated appropriately in him. Everything in heaven, everything on earth, that all of those things that have been created by him would be given for him, for his glory. <laughs> That's our purpose. So see, it's about our redemption in Jesus Christ. It's about our future, our hope, our purpose, which is also found in Jesus Christ. So we should praise the Son. And this is what this long section is. It's just a prayer of praise. 
to the Son for our redemption, forgiveness of sins, and his overabounding grace. We should praise the Son for being the final revelation of God, our Father, for being the center of all existence. And ultimately, we should praise the Son because he is the goal of all of human history. And he's the goal of your life. If you have not understood the wonder of the gospel, it is that God in his grace is willing to forgive you of your sins, to cancel your debt, to bring you home, and to make you part of his eternal glory. Your part is to recognize your own sinfulness, to repent, and to believe on him and him alone for salvation. That's the gospel message. It's not so much about what I get. It's more and more about who God is and what he has accomplished for us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, even as we examine this song of praise, Lord, we are astounded by the wealth that we hear, the wealth of your grace, of your kindness, how your name and your glory and your glorious grace shall be exalted and proclaimed through all of eternity, and rightly so. Because, Lord, nothing that we have from you we can claim as deserving. And in your infinite grace, you have done so much more than we could ever bargain, we could ever earn, we could ever deserve. Lord, would you help us to lean in on your grace, your all-sufficient, abounding, and lavish grace that you pour upon us and make us and help us to be the kind of people that live like we are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We praise you for all that you do. We pray for the second hour classes and the fellowship. And we particularly lift up, Lord, um, those uh, men and women that are going to proclaim their testimony of your salvation to them in the baptisms today. We thank you for all of it in Jesus' name.